0: I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from the front lines, discuss telegraph polling of US public opinion, and we hear from Ukrainian politician and leader of the Holos political party, Kira Rudik, whose own home has been damaged by Russian bombing. Bravery takes you through the most
1: unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory.
0: If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the
2: job. Slava, Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
0: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom, our teams reporting on the ground, to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 8th of January. One year and 318 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley, Brussels Correspondent Joe Barnes, and our guest is People's Deputy of Ukraine, Kira Rudik. But I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine.
3: Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So quite a few updates today being uh, Monday, a uh, few bits and bobs from over the weekend. So let's start from Friday, last Friday, it was claimed operatives from Ukraine's military intelligence agency had launched a cross-border raid into Russia. An unnamed and unnumbered group, as in the number of personnel, was said to have inflicted an undisclosed number of losses on Russian forces in the frontier region of Belgorod. This comes from uh, Ukraine's military intelligence agency on Telegram. It's all pretty vague, as I've said there, unnamed, unnumbered, all the rest of it. We've no way of verifying the video footage. It was shot on a helmet camera. It supposedly shows Ukrainian troops mining a road that is thought to be used by Russian troops in the Graveron district. That's about 50 k's west of Belgorod, uh, 60 K's northwest of Kharkiv, just over the border, about 4 k's over the border into Russia. At one point on this video, there's an exchange of gunfire as troops move through a heavily wooded area. But it doesn't... I mean, the gunfire... Seems not to have been in contact. There doesn't seem a huge amount of urgency. Anyway, so we don't know what it was, basically. There have been a number of cross border incursions into Russia since the start of the full scale invasion. You may remember a raid last year by a Kiev backed Russian opposition group, which involved western armored vehicles may last year that raid was reportedly carried out by anti-kremlin fighters from the so-called russian freedom legion and the russian volunteer corps both of which claim to be part of kiev's foreign fighter legion a spokesman for ukraine's military intelligence back then said those two volunteer battalions had crossed into the belgorod region to create a security zone to protect ukrainian civilians from russian attacks there's no suggestion yet that the raid this raid over the weekend or whatever it was although it was in the same area was in any way connected to these groups so just uh, keep your eyes on that next then this morning Russia has continued its, its launched the latest wave, continued its wave of drone and missile attacks on Ukrainian cities. The Ukrainian Air Force said Tu-95MS strategic bombers and MiG-31 fighters had had been part of the attack. Air, air raid alerts uh, nationwide. Explosions reported in the cities of Kiev, Kharkiv, Zaporizhia, Kryvyi, uh, Dniprovets uh, Petrovsk, and uh, Kamianetsky. That last one being quite far in the west, about 200 K southwest of Kyiv. Alexander Vilkul, who's the mayor of Krivare, um, that's about 100 K southwest of Dnipro, said the enemy is viciously attacking peaceful cities. And Sergei Lysak who's the governor of Dnipro, Petrovsk, said the mad enemy once again struck civilians. He said they had directed missiles at people. There were numerous deaths and injuries reported across the country. Ukrainian Armed Forces Southern Command said it had shot down all eight Shahid drones launched by Russia. And the Air Force continued to say that they had shot down, as well as those drones, 18 of 24. So make a note of the numbers, because I'm going to have a quick comment on this. 18 of 24 uh, KH-101, 555 and 55 air launch cruise missiles, but none of the four Kinzhal cruise missiles. The seven S-300 or S-400 missiles and the eight Kh-22 and six Iskander M and two Kh-31 missiles launched overnight. So a bit of a bit of a garble there. But the point is that of the more sophisticated weaponry, they didn't Ukraine's air defense seemed to struggle or didn't hit many of them. Now, that might be because they are running low on ammunition for reasons that we've spoken about over many, many weeks now. The Shahids were all shot down, the drones, but remember they are low, slow and quite noisy and they are largely brought down by small arms fire, um, and it, Well, in which I include the kind of Gepards, the twin barrel, um, very high rate of fire, chucking you know, small rounds in the air, uh, but can bring down drones relatively easily, much harder. You need the, the big, the Patriots and all the rest of it to, to bring down the hypersonic and the cruise missiles now, so as I say, it might be because they, uh, Ukraine is running low on ammunition for for the more sophisticated air defences. It might be because the, the, the rounds they are firing Ukraine's air defence are missing. Maybe the, the systems aren't good enough for the people. I doubt that because they've performed very well so far. It might be because Russia is now firing their missiles where they think air defence is absent. That might be why they're scattering it across the whole country. Remember Russia's purpose here is not it's not really to degrade Ukraine's military capability, it's to terrorise the population by destroying critical national infrastructure, including sites of cultural and historical value, and just killing randomly. They're, they're seeking to break morale and break the, the civilian side of this war rather than Ukraine's military now, perhaps in recognition of that situation, those numbers have just spoken about, Ukraine's Air Force spokesperson, Yuri Inhat, he told reporters earlier today that Ukraine's air defences have successfully intercepted 25 out of 63 Kinzhal hypersonic air launch missiles fired by Russia since the start of the full-scale invasion. Again, 25 out of 63 is less than half, and if Yuri Inhat is... Is taking the longer view and saying, "Well, overall, this, these are the figures." That that sort there's a kind of tacit acknowledgement there, that that this has been a, a very difficult weekend. So not not trying to sugarcoat the news for you, good people. We're all sensible people. We'll give it to you, black as well as white. So yes, yeah, so not a, not a great weekend for Ukrainian air defence, but quite what that means and the reasons for that, I think will will play out over the next few days, and obviously we'll be we'll be all over it like one of David's bad suits. Now, separately, Moscow's defence ministry said it had intercepted a Ukrainian missile attack on Belgorod, the region I mentioned earlier on, about 50 K's north of Kharkiv, and the same distance to the east, about another 50 K's east of the reported border raid that I started the updates with today. There's no way of knowing if the, if the raid that I started with and these strikes in Belgorod are connected. Next, bit of an odd one, this suspected Russian drones are regularly being spotted over army bases in Germany, where NATO is training Ukrainian soldiers. This is coming from German tabloid Bilt. Uh Ukrainians learning to operate leopard tanks and other bits and bobs have, have been observed repeatedly by drones, according to Marcus Faber, German MP. He said he suspected Russia was responsible, but he didn't give any evidence for that. He said the German army has, quote, a huge amount of catching up to do when it comes to drones. And Andreas Schwartz, another MP, said we must not allow Russia to spy on military training areas with drones. Germany has trained about 6,000 soldiers last year, Ukrainian soldiers in its country. Now, I say it's odd because... They should have been expecting this, I reckon. And also, if you're expecting observation by drones, uh, if not by Russians and by local hoods or anybody, yeah, that's a good training opportunity for anti-drone and electronic warfare training. So I'm, su- I'm surprised they weren't they didn't have some kind of defences there. But maybe, as, um, as Marcus Faber said, Germany has a huge amount of catching up to do when it comes to drones. Anyway, interesting one. Now, speaking speaking of which, Japan has promised to provide 29 million pounds worth, that's 37 million US dollars worth, of kits to a NATO initiative supplying anti-drone defenses to Ukraine. Foreign Minister Yoko Kimikawa, she visited Ukraine uh, yesterday or over the weekend, and, and yesterday she uh, she said Japan would also supply generators to help Ukraine get through the winter. She said Japan will keep supporting Ukraine so that peace can be restored. And of note, Tokyo is set to host the next in the round of conferences on Ukrainian reconstruction in February. Now, and then into uh, into Russian controlled areas of Ukraine and Russia has accidentally bombed a town in occupied Luhansk. This is uh, from the Moscow installed leader of the region, Leonid Pashik, said a uh, FAB 250 munition. That's an old Soviet design, 250 kilogram general purpose bomb. Struck Rubizhna, that's five Ks northwest of Severodonetsk. He said there were no injuries. Locals were evacuated, some into temporary accommodation. He said an investigation and operational team of the Interior Ministry, as well as representatives of the Ministry of Emergency Situations and the Military Commandant's Office, are working on the site. Now, that incident comes just a week after a similar one in the village of Petropavlovka, that's in Russia. A long way inside Russia, 200 k's, well, uh, about 200 k's east of Kharkiv, 50 k's across the border, where an inadvertent strike by a Russian jet last week destroyed six houses. Now inside Russia, a 16-year-old boy has been arrested after another, uh, well, after a Russian Su-34 fighter jet was destroyed by fire. I say another because obviously there were there were more than brought down in the last couple of weeks. But not in this incident. So, a 16-year-old boy arrested after an Su-34 was torched at an airbase in Chelyabinsk. This is about a thousand kilometers east of Moscow. Apparently, the plane went up, went up in flames last Thursday. Ukraine's military intelligence, the HUR, released a video of the action. This boy, apparently from Dagestan, was arrested on Friday. He's been put into pre-trial detention, and Russia's TASS news agency said. Evidence of the suspect's communications with Ukrainian intelligence had been uncovered. But no further no further details there. And then just finally, for me, David, you may remember the, um, the old, the group Shmersh from, uh, from all the James Bond movies. Well, I mean, it was based on facts, Much of Bond stuff uh, well, had, a, had a basis, in fact, I suppose. Russia has revived the Shmersh counterintelligence agency. This is according to British MOD. The organisation, which is an abbreviation of the Russian phrase Death to Spies, made famous in the Bond movies, as I say, British MOD saying that some Russian operatives have been seeing wearing new uniform patches with smirsh on them. Defence Intelligence say it is unclear whether the new name indicates any substantive new capabilities or role for Russia's counterintelligence function or whether it's merely rebadging, literally a badge. However, it provides another example of how the Russian authorities consciously couch the Russia-Ukraine conflict in the spirit of the Second World War and their strong focus on the supposed infiltration of external threats into the country. I mean, it's a bit like when you number... Um, military units and formations. You don't have number one battalion, number two battalion, number three battalion. You call them number 17, the West Lothian Battalion, number 58, the Bosch Lowland Brigadiers and all that kind of stuff. It's to confuse the enemy. It's so that we can't then just write them all down and work out how many troops they've got. So maybe these Russian operatives... I've just got new badges on their uniform and then we all go, oh, they've got a smirch back. It's a new counterintelligence department. Anyway, it might just all be, all be um, it might be just part of counterintelligence for the p- price of uh, a few rubles to get a few cotton patches. And that's, that's me for now, David. Thank you very
0: much, Tom.
4: Francis Sternley, what have you been looking at this week? Thanks, David. I'm going to start with America today because, as we've discussed so often, it's what's happening there which may well determine the future course of this war. We, The Telegraph, have conducted our own polling on the issue of military support for Ukraine in the United States. And it shows that voters in key battleground states believe that America has given too much military support to Ukraine as President Biden faces that battle over the war effort on Capitol Hill. So we found that a third of voters in six swing states said they thought America had spent too much with a large minority in six, of, five of the six, forgive me, saying that aid should now be cut. So the large swing state tracker poll which we've put together shows that trump has more support for his ukraine policy in arizona florida georgia michigan north carolina and pennsylvania In five of the six states, 32% of the respondents said US support for Ukraine had been too high, with 33% reporting the same in Pennsylvania. Between 30 and 37% said support should be decreased, with between 15 and 19% arguing it should be increased. In five of the six states, voters thought the war would not be happening if Trump had won the 2020 election and asked which country represented the greatest threat to the United States, only 25% or fewer in all six of those states, said Russia. Georgia, interestingly, was the most concerned about the war, with 34% reporting that it would be an extremely important factor in their decision on polling day. I think this speaks to the impact of pretty continual scepticism from politicians of both stripes, particularly in the Republican Party, about defence spending to Kyiv. One wonders if Moore spoke about the fact that around 90% of that funding remains in the United States, going towards contracts for weapons, etc. Whether the public would feel the same way in those states, they might not. But the fact is, at that point, is little known. With leadership candidates, particularly in the Republican fraternity, often wishing to report the narrative that American dollars are being funneled to Kiev and disappearing into corrupt officials' coffers, something to which there is well, very little evidence and is simply untrue if you're measuring it in terms of the vast majority of support, which, as I say, remains in the United States on defence contracts. It also speaks to the degree to which this becomes self-fulfilling. This polling will mean that even candidates who don't feel concerned about excessive military spending to Kiev will feel obliged to talk about it based on data like this, which they'll, of course, have themselves from their own sources. We're only reporting what we... In a sense, others already know, but wanted to put the numbers behind it ourselves. And indeed, it's very interesting. I'm sure you'll agree. I think this is, suffice to say, a concerning development for many who care about the war in Ukraine, are concerned about the future trajectory of defence spending, and perhaps more importantly, pledges of defence spending, even from the Democrats and perhaps particularly from the White House. It becomes much more difficult for politicians to do so, if they feel, rightly or wrongly, that the public don't want to hear it. This is something that, of course, President Roosevelt found was the problem of the 1930s, that he believed strongly in giving more support to Western countries who were resisting or about to resist Hitler. But, of course, the American public at the time, certainly after the First World War, indeed, like Europe was prior to the beginning of the Second World War, extremely sceptical. Of more investment and more mobilisation in response because of the known losses and sufferings that they had endured in the Great War. And it's understandable, of course, given the horrors of that conflict. But in other news, on Saturday, Putin staged a lavish Orthodox Christmas Eve dinner for children of soldiers killed in Ukraine. He bow- vowed to back those with arms in their hands as he hosted what was unsurprisingly a heavily choreographed event at his residence on the outskirts of Moscow. It came as festivities were cancelled in the Borgia region of Belgorod amid continued Ukrainian attacks that have left dozens dead over the past week. To quote Putin directly, many of our men, our courageous heroic men, the soldiers of Russia, are right now defending the interests of our country with weapons in their hands on this holiday. He then addressed the children directly, telling them their dead fathers were heroes. I will not talk about a very delicate, maybe even difficult subject on the eve of this holiday concerning your families. But I want to assure you once again that we'll always be by your side. I would like our meeting to be a clear, understandable signal to all my colleagues throughout the Russian Federation and at all levels. A clear signal to ensure my colleagues are always and everywhere with you. I repeat, at any level of power. He said this, but he didn't provide further details about what form the extra support might take. I think this is something that we should note. Putin rarely meets with the families of soldiers fighting in Ukraine. When he does, it's usually when the Kremlin is trying to lionize an offensive. Exiled Russian opposition media have said the individuals picked to attend this event. Uh, were carefully selected for their pro-war and pro-Kremlin credentials. They allegedly included two Kremlin-linked social activists and the widow and the children of a priest attached to Russia's strategic missile forces who were killed in Ukraine's Herzog region in 2022. The dinner came as Putin, of course, readies himself for elections that he intends to use as a major display of public support for his war In Ukraine. I think that's the real context here that we should be reading into this. State television footage showed Putin afterwards attending an intimate midnight service known as the Divine Liturgy later that evening at a local chapel alongside a small group of families of soldiers killed. There was interestingly but not surprisingly no call from him this year for a ceasefire to coincide with the orthodox christmas holiday something that he did last year no wonder it's because he thinks he has an advantage for right or wrong at the moment unlike last year which is why we said at the time that his call for causing a pause to the war was so hollow back last year but no such call this year as i say Now, lastly, just staying on political figures, Alexander Lukashenko, leader of Belarus, of course, sometimes known as Europe's last dictator, has granted himself lifelong immunity from criminal prosecution with a degree that also bars exiled opposition leaders from standing in presidential elections. So this law, which was signed at the end of last week, theoretically applies to any former president and members of his or her family. In reality, of course, it's only relevant to him. 69 years old, ruled Belarus with an iron fist for almost 30 years. This new measure appears to be an attempt by Lukashenko to shore up power and eliminate potential challenges in the country's next presidential election, which is due to take place in 2025, I believe. It tightens requirements for candidates and makes it impossible to elect opposition leaders who fled to neighbouring countries in recent years. Only citizens of Belarus who permanently resided in the country for at least 20 years and have never had a residence permit in another country are eligible to run. This speaks volumes, of course, because almost every major opposition leader has forced been forced to leave the country. Listeners will recall that when we were last covering Belarus, it, it was rocked by mass protests during Lukashenko's re-election in August 2020 mm. for a sixth term when the opposition and the West condemned it as fraudulent. As many as 35,000 people were detained by the Belarusian authorities then, many of whom were tortured or forced to leave the country. As I say, that was a subject we discussed with the main opposition leader, Svetlana Sikhanouskaya, a few weeks ago, I think it was. So it's worth looking at if you want more details on the Belarus example specifically. Some will read this, of course, as the latest move is indicative of his power. But as we've said many times, another way of reading this, as with all dictatorships, really, is speaking to their own insecurities and vulnerabilities. If you really felt secure, would you feel the need to pass legislation such as this? We know there is great tension in Belarus as a result of the war in Ukraine. And were there to be an implosion in Russia triggered by this conflict, more on that in my final thought shortly, then Lukashenko would certainly be vulnerable. As well, due to his working closely with Moscow and the fact that many of these autocrats are tied tightly to other autocrats. And When one tumbles, they tend to all tumble for various political reasons, as well as opposition causes in various other countries being inspired by the overthrow of leaders in the uh, usually the sort of central regimes. So, any an interesting subject, something we continue to monitor closely. I know it's been a while since we've talked about Belarus. Of course, a country also heavily implicated in the kidnapping of children, as our reporters have investigated in detail, and we will return to that in course. Whilst this comes as no surprise, it is still revealing, I think. Thank you so much, Francis, for taking us
0: through all of that. Joe Barnes, there's just a few European stories on your radar that you've been looking at.
2: Can you talk us through them? Hi, folks. I've got a two short points, I think. Uh, worthwhile making today so when britain and well, zelensky recently in recent days have said one of the big successes is reopening and establishing a, a black sea grain corridor um so basically allowing shipping in and out of ukraine this is what they're talking about so um the grain corridor that has been established in the past five months by ukraine has managed to ship 15 million metric tons of cargo uh, that includes 10 million metric tons of agricultural products, and that's according, according to Infrastructure Minister Alec- Alexander Kubarakrov. Um And that, that just goes to show that, yes, we look at like the battlefield and the front line, the counteroffensive as maybe a failing, but actually Ukraine has made sort of big successes uh, elsewhere. And the other point I just want to make shortly, or tightly, is that there'll probably be a lot of scaremongering over reports that... Charles Michel, the European Council President, is due to step down early to stand in the European elections and become an MEP. But there's been a lot of reporting around that Viktor Orban could take temporary charge of the European Council because Hungary in July becomes the chair of the EU's rotating presidency. All very confusing, yes, but basically means that he would be in charge if there was no European Council President in place. Could he block that? European Council president being elected the answer is no it's uh, done by what's known as a qualified majority vote which would basically mean if France Germany and a few of the other larger countries voted in favor of a candidate who would be against the ideas of Viktor Orbán then that would go through without Viktor Orbán say so so yeah it's on the face of it it doesn't look great for sort of Ukraine's uh, support for Ukraine from the EU because of what Viktor Orbán has done so far but yeah rest assured that he won't be able to single-handedly hold things up as a sort of de facto European Council President.
0: Well, let's go to our guest, Kira Rudik. Thank you so much for joining us. People's Deputy of Ukraine, leader of the Holos Party in the Rada. Thank you so much for joining us today. Kira, earlier today you tweeted, I'm just reading it out now, hellish morning in Ukraine. How many more of those we would have to suffer until the right decisions are made? Russia can be defeated and we need to do it. Kira, can you tell us about your morning? What happened?
1: Hello, good morning. Uh, you see, it's very common right now in Ukraine to wake up because of air raid siren is on. And Russia keeps terrorizing us, doing on Putin's promise to intensify the shelling of the peaceful cities. And uh, the summary from our forces is that over the last two weeks, they have sent, Russia has sent our way more than 500 missiles. Most of them were taken down. But can you imagine, just imagine, every single night sitting in a bomb shelter or in your corridor or under the stairs, knowing that there are huge pieces of metal going your way to kill you and there is nothing that you as a person can do to stop that.
0: Kira, we saw on your Twitter feed that your house has been targeted and and um, can you tell us what happened and, and what's your situation now?
1: Oh, it's, uh, it's It's very hard to talk about it so it it was January the 2nd so the day before we were arguing if we are taking down the tree or still keeping it and we decided to keep it and so the air raid siren was on and I was on my way downstairs to sit under the stairs this is where we usually hide and then there was explosion it felt like Armageddon because the explosion was not really close it was far away but the wave was so intense that it pulled windows out of the frames and threw it at the center of the room so the windows were broken on one side of my home there was a part of the walls it has been distracted and and we went outside to see if the if there are people who are wounded or injured And uh, we were starting helping each other with our neighbors. And the most terrifying thing was the smoke and the sound and everything was that the attack continued. So we were on the street and there were still missiles in the air that were taking down, exploding. And it, it was absolutely, absolute horror. And I cannot begin to tell you what I felt and what people who were at the epicenter of the explosion must have felt. And this, that day we lost five people and more than 100 were injured. I s- was so lucky that I had only minor injuries and my neighbors were not that lucky. And there were ambulances going in and out and people were helping each, each other and were like, there is an interesting thing that I really want to deliver here. People are talking that there is exhaustion, that it's so hard to be for two years at war and suffer every day. But the truth was that when the tragedies happened, people are standing together so close, helping each other at every single point. So when the attack was over, we looked around at all the damages, we put out some fires that appeared, and we have seen that the destruction was really major through probably a kilometer radius from from where the missile actually hit, where the explosion happened. Uh, I never imagined that the wave would be so hard and it, it will be, influence so many people and their houses. We cleaned up my apartment and it was probably seven bags of shattered glass. Can you imagine this? So now when I'm asked how do I know that Putin does not want peace, I can tell you right away that I have a real proof of that. And this proof if, is seven bags of... Of shattered glass that is still in my backyard we are waiting for the services to come and help us take it out then we covered my windows with the plastic and uh, some tape and so now we are in the progress of uh, some rebuild there would be minus 18 in kiev this week so i'm really 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 hopeful that we will be able to fix the windows before that but can you imagine that when I went to the place where uh, the explosion was, there were people who lost their limbs, the people who lost their homes completely, and they are of course victims of this explosion, and uh, and it's just terror because again you feel so helpless. Like you personally can be so brave, you can train, you can. I don't know, donate to our army. You can work on a political area to bring us the weapons that we need. But the fact is, as a citizen, as a human being, there is nothing you can do against the missile that is coming from the sky to kill you and everything that you loved, worked, and built. I was thinking what I can tell our allies to make it more clear of what Ukraine needs and the best best way of dealing with everything that's happened is to use it as a reminder that the war is not over, that the war is closer than you can imagine, and that we survived this attack, but what about the next one? And there is no guarantee that the next one will be not successful for Russia. And so we need all the political promises that we, had rece- we received during the last year, we need all of them to become true. This is the first and foremost. We need the air defense systems and the missiles for those systems. And we need them not in 2025, we need them right now, because you see that the attacks continue. An important aspect of what happened is that in two years, after the full-scale invasion started, the sanction did not work that well, So Russia was able to continue producing missiles or receive them from its allies, Iran and North Korea. And believe me, Russia's allies are not behind on supplying air defense systems and uh, missiles and weapons to them. And this is why we need all our neighboring countries and all our friendly countries, our allies, democratic countries, to go ahead and make sure that these promises are fulfilled that there is no delays on receiving air defense systems, no delays on the fighter jets, no delays on anything, because it literally means lives of people. Because the delay of two days would mean that some people would die on the front, some people would die in their bed. I constantly say that the worst thing about, about living in Ukraine right now is that when you're going to bed every evening, there is absolutely no guarantee that you will wake up in the morning. Nobody can guarantee you that. How dreadful is it?
3: Kira, may I just jump in there? It's Dom here. Thanks so much for joining us today. And I'm very sorry that we didn't get to meet at the um, the Magnitsky Awards just before Christmas. But one thing we've been discussing recently on the pod, I'd be very interested in your view on this, is about the idea that the pressure, soft P, pressure that's being Placed on President Zelensky, whether and when and how far to mobilise his country, your country, to to fight, and whether the conscription age should come down from twenty seven at the moment to twenty twenty one or whatever to get to get young, younger people in, if that's what's required for the next year to to really build up a military. Where do you stand on this idea that? Ukrainian society should mobilize and many more hundreds of thousands of people should be made eligible for military service. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Dan. So, first of all, the bill uh, to lower down the age of mobilization of people who can be mobilized to lower it down from 27 to 25. This bill is already has been, I think, on President Zelensky's table for three or four months. We as a parliament have voted for it, supported it and because we we understand that we should do what uh, the military require and then they require to have more people to give the people who are fighting at the front right now a chance to recuperate, at le- to, to um, have at least some rest. So the request that Ukrainian society has right now is justice, and we are trying, doing our best to figure out how this justice would look like. It is unjust that there are some people who deliberately or by conscription joined the army in 2022 f- to fight Russia's aggression, that they are fighting for two years, and uh, there is no limit to how long they should stay in the army. And there is there are some people who are not doing that. It's our constitutional obligation to fight for the country because you not only have the rights, you also have their responsibilities and the war is a time when the government and the state and well your motherland is telling you well right now is a time when you have to go and uh, fight for what you believe in. I think there is not there is not not a question in Ukrainian society on like should should there be a mobilization. We understand that there should be. There is a question on how to make it the most fair and for everyone, and that's a question that not only ukraine struggles with right it's uh, it has been always during the wars on um, making sure that you are utilizing this request from the society to like, to improve the army and to make it stronger however people who who are like not at the front right now they are not willingly like going and saying, oh, well, okay, you can recruit me right away. I think this is the main issue and this is the main question. We will figure out the proper way. There are many debates, both in the society and in Ukrainian parliament, but there are a couple of points here. The first, we will always serve as a service to our army. So we have no other chance than to, than to support them with their requests and their decisions. And second is, as a country that has our responsibility to provide people to fight, we will fulfill this responsibility. One of the biggest concerns that people have right now in joining the army is they will have enough weapons this is true. So you don't want to go to fight empty-handed. And, and though I do not think that it is uh, like something that already happened, because we, are, we cannot afford to use people as battlefield meat as Russia does. However, I think this threat has underlying news on that we did not receive enough weapons and supplies, and that it would be a challenge to, to fight properly at the front.
0: Kira, thank you so much for your time. That was really fascinating. And um, it's very good. It's been very good to hear you and and your thoughts. And we wish you all the best uh, in when it comes to your house and um, getting your house back on track in, in the coming weeks. Thank you so much for your time, Kira. Let's move now, I think, to our final thoughts. Dom, would you like to go first?
3: Yeah, I'll jump in there. Thanks. It's worth noting today it's been announced that Sweden, one of the t- two newest NATO members, is going to send 800 soldiers to Latvia in 2025. This is part of NATO's EFP, Enhanced Forward Presence Programme, whereby NATO members send troops to the to the state's border or to the, the eastern flank of NATO, basically. So Britain got troops up in Estonia, Canada has command of the of the EFP mission in Latvia and the Swedish troops 800 are going to come under Canadian command in 2025. Now 2025 seems a little way away but it, it really isn't and of course this is a direct result of Russia's full-scale invasion. The whole EFP mission was set up after 2014 after the initial incursions in Crimea and now this is this is just the latest evidence Putin for all his talk of wanting to challenge nato and all the rest of it. his actions have made nato stronger increased the size of nato and now you see swedish troops pledging or sweden pledging to send troops to another nato member under command of a third nato so if a nato country so if ever there's an example of how actually this has really brought nato together this is it and very very i think notable that sweden uh, i say one of the newest members has already pledging troops under command of another nato country and the efp missions so i think that is quite significant david Thank you very much, uh, Dom. Francis, let's come to you then for the very final thought today.
4: Well, thanks, David. I'm grateful to everyone who's written in with their thoughts and reflections on my three-day strategic overview of the current state of the war last week. I hope to read through all of those responses over the coming days. But in the meantime, I wanted to read this interesting comment left on YouTube by Mark. Francis is right, but with one possible caveat, in that military or, for that matter, societal collapse of Russia does not require a massive or even moderate success on the part of Ukraine on the battlefield. The pressure that they have been putting Russia on for the past two years is evident to anybody who has lived in Russia, such as myself. Success does not only need to be massive, but actually only of a sufficient quality to cause problems. As an interesting note, Mark Galliotti echoes this and many other of my fellow expats. Expats come in two flavours for the most part, those who have taken hook, line and sinker the illusion that the Kremlin and upper society has been trying to foist on any unsuspecting gullible Westerner over the years, or those of us who see through it. Please remember, everything in Russia is hidden behind a mask, a facade that does not in any way or form actually represent reality. It is for that reason that I believe that there are many more cracks showing right now beneath that painted surface than the West has truly seen or is aware of. An example of this myth is the idea that Russians are insensitive to the massive loss of life of their soldiers. Look at the incredible lengths the Russian apparatus tries to ameliorate things like mobilisation. To think they don't care is an incorrect read of Russian society. The society society is just as sensitive as the West is to those losses. The regime, on the other hand, is not. Therefore, they oppress even harder. At this point, I don't believe there is a way for dissent to show up anything other than in an extremely violent burst. This may be triggered by a military collapse, or it might be triggered by somebody just being fed up enough and screaming out of the window one day. But I don't believe there is any path left for this regime other than a violent end to it. When this question mark occurs and what the spark will be to trigger that question mark is uncertain. But the fuel and conditions are, in my view, now primed and set. And I don't believe there's a way around it anymore other than for the regime top cadre, all of it, to disappear in some manner or another. Well, thanks for that, Mark. No doubt other listeners will have perspectives on this question. There remains, of course, great uncertainty about the state of the Russian economy and its long-term prospects, which speaks to this as well. It is not as simple as saying Russia has ridden out sanctions successfully, and that's the end of the matter. Rather, I would suggest it needs to be seen in terms of degrees of damage, not least the cost of its vast increase in military expenditure. Another uncertain factor, of course, though also relevant to this, is the impact of the militarization on Russian society on economics indirectly. So I quoted Sam Green and others last week who are keen to point out that it may no longer be in Putin's interest to see an end to the war because of the political powers and opportunities that it gives him. But that could also remain true to a degree in the new wartime economy. And what I mean by that is, if one looks at history, one often sees that states that spend a sustained period of spending on the military reach a point where they can no longer very easily stop due to the political pressures of say, a mass demobilisation, or because the military becomes an increasingly powerful power base within those societies. And the dangers of this are obvious, as it means that nations can sometimes become even more militaristic and more imperialist in order to essentially survive economically and politically. I've mentioned several times Adam Tooze's brilliant book, Wages of Destruction, which drives home this point, namely that if you look at the example of the Nazi economy, it was spending so much on the military that it actually required a war of conquest. It became essential in order for the regime to remain financially afloat. It required the spoils of war and new territory. And that's a point that was often missed and is still missed by those countries who push for appeasement style policies. This may well become increasingly relevant to modern Russia if they are spending more but achieving less, or at least much below than what they would expect. That's one possible scenario where the tensions in the society might reach boiling point, though my guess is we're still some way off that being a realistic possibility. But I would, of course, love to be wrong. But thank you, Mark, and to all of those who've written in reflecting on the strategic picture at the moment. It's going to be an ongoing subject, I think, over the coming weeks. Ukraine The Latest is an original
0: podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.